Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Okay, so the Tower of Babel or Babel. Um, Let's read it. Uh, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there's that word, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, over, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You've heard that before, right? It's a lot more in there than you probably think, but that's why we're here. So. Um, any initial kind of, kind of gut reactions to that text? I'm going to jump out at you. Yes, Janie Binion. Come let us. You see it three times, don't you? That's right. Janie made an interesting observation, which I was going to point out, but, it's, uh, but she's made it for me. You want to teach the class for me tonight, Janie? No, no, it's great. It's good. Uh, did you notice that the people that are in the plain of Shinar say, come let us make the city and then the tower. Um, it's the same expression that God uses in Genesis 2, right? Come, let us make man in our image. And then, of course, God says, come, let us make, uh, let's, you know, uh, confuse their language. We'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, it's not interesting. Look, I, this, is all, this is all a thread. One thing I hope you learn when you go through this a while is all these scriptures hang together. There's themes that repeat over and over again. Come, let us make is a theme which recurs, whether it's God or, in this case, uh, the, uh, the Babylonians, Babylonians. So, anything else jump out at you? Did you notice anything this time that you hadn't noticed before? Yes, Judy? Oh, yeah. That, that Judy, makes, uh, Judy makes a good point. The Hebrew word Babel, it's actually Babel, I think, technically speaking, sounds like what it means, which is nonsense. Good point. Yeah, some of them do, some of them don't. Uh, but yes, you're right. It's a, uh, what's the word for a word that sounds like what sound it makes? Onomatopoeia, is that it? So, okay, good. Anything else jump out of you? Okay, so, yes, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. We're going to get to that in a second. I don't really know the answer, but we're going we're gonna to kick it around a little. So let's look from, the, from verse 1, and then I want to point a few things out to you. Uh, now the whole earth... This is after the flood, right? After Noah and his family left the ark 
And if you look back at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, what did God tell Noah to go and do? Anybody remember? He said, build a house and live in one cul-de-sac, didn't he? <laughs> he said, God said, when Noah, when Noah took him out of the boat, right? Remember that? Last, this is important. When, when, because these people are all descendants of Noah, okay? Noah and his, bro and his sons. And so back in ver chapter 9, verse 1, which we just read two weeks ago, uh, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and stay in one spot. No, fill the earth. Okay? It is actually a, an expression not unlike when Jesus gives the Great Commission. Go and, and uh, preach the gospel to all nations. God is always telling his people, go out into the world and change it. Does that make sense? So when God tells Noah and his disciples, get out of the boat and go and multiply and fill the earth, he's telling them that as a missionary charge. Is that clear? Yes? So was Noah and his descendants and all the people that followed, their job was to go out into the world and repopulate it. But what did they do? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Oh, that's an expression which means uh, they spoke the same language and they had the same vocabulary. Okay? It's an, it's an the word, language and words are a little different words, but it's, it's an emphatic meaning. Uh, these people all spoke the same language and they could understand each other clearly. Incidentally, uh, people, uh, linguists, and if anybody knows anything about this, you are, uh, correct me please, uh, I was reading about this this past week, and linguists have identified a common human language, which I never knew about. They don't know what it is, but they, can, they posit a common human language behind all other human languages, interestingly. Even the one, I never knew that. I thought you'd have like, because they're, you know, they're, now they're so varied, but apparently, I didn't look into this too far, but they were saying there's this language called the proto-something, which is this language that they th think was at one point the root of all other human language, interestingly. But, uh, verse 1, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and did what? Settled there. Are they supposed to settle there? No. So there's actually three acts of disobedience in this story, right? The first one is actually they were headed out, when well, they headed out to the east, and then what, if you look at a map on here, there's Eden, and they go out of Eden, and <laughs> you can actually trace it out. They kind of go from here in Eden, right, somewhere in Mesopotamia, and then they go out and they come all the way back. They circle back, so they don't get very far in their going forth and uh, being fruitful and multiplying. And in fact, what they do is they come back from the east. They went to the east and they come back from the east. They're supposed to be going to the east, not back from it. You with me? And they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Let me ask you a question, and it's an obvious one if you just think about it for a minute. God said, go out, conquer the world, fill it, spread the good news, tell them about me, and they say, you know, I think we ought to just stay here. Why do you think they did? We don't actually know, but actually we kind of do know. But why would you do that? Safety. What's that? Comfort. Safety. That's a, certainly one. What, what else? Comfort. Comfort, right? Laziness. Right. Could be, right? 
Um, uh, verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. As Janie pointed out, that is a... Uh, 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 sorry? Permanent. Permanent structure, but it's also a, a word which is reminiscent of the word that God used when he created people. Come, let us make. So they say, come, let us make, make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they, and then actually that verse 3 there is really clunky. Uh, it's very uh, repetitive in the Hebrew, and that's actually kind of a rough translation. It's actually, if you were to do it literally, come let us, let us make bricks for bricking and burn them thoroughly. It's just weird, the construction. Um, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and what? A tower. Do you see the problem? What's the problem with why is God so afraid? Why does he get frustrated by this tower thing? Well, partly, yes. Part, part of the answer is, as Sarah mentioned, part of the answer is hubris, building a name for themselves. We'll get to that in a second. But part of it is that they are refusing to tell their friends about Jesus. I mean, to make it a, 20, to a modern Christian context. In other words, what they're doing is they are hunkering down and settling down and building a city and a tower. You build the tower for protection. They're in a plane, right? Everybody ever live in a plane? Well, we live in a plane here, essentially. It's flat. And if you live in a flat spot with no protection, what do you have to do? You got to build a tower, right? So you can do what? See and protect yourself. But do you see the point in all this? That the reason that they want to settle down and build a city and protect themselves is because who don't they trust? Right? So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of very subtle, but actually once you look at it, it's pretty obvious, layers of human unwillingness to do what God called them to do. And actually, you see this over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Uh, but you see that they, rather than going out and spreading and filling the whole earth, they actually go to, you know, Sarasota and then come back, right, and decide to just live in Vero. <laughs> I'm being funny. But they don't actually do what God has called them to do. They don't, they don't go out to preach, to spread, I mean, not preach, but to spread humanity, to be creative. What they do instead is they seek to protect themselves. It's actually very similar to the same initial sin of Adam and Eve, right? Remember when the Adam and Eve and the devil said, if you eat this, you'll be like, what? Like God. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. What they're fundamentally doing is saying, you know, I don't think God's got this one. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to build a city and a tower, and we're going to live here, and that way I've got a little bit of control over my life, and I don't have to rely on the big guy to bail me out. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We all, do, we all, we, friends, we all do this. That's my point. That's why I get to that in a minute. But Greg and then uh, Lee. Greg. When I read it, it occurred to me that, um, that the people were revolting against God's word. They were. And that the power might be used to avoid another destruction by a flood. Yes, well, that's, well, to your point, yes. Uh, uh, um, his point was that uh, they were trying to build a tower to protect themselves and avoid another flood. Could be, or at least avoid. Uh, we know that from last week that God had said he would never flood the whole earth and kill everybody, but there could still be a flood, of course, or armies. Right, right. They're going against. They were. They were not. 
that what they were doing was they, first of all, they weren't being obedient. They weren't doing and spreading, going out and spreading humanity, first thing. Secondly, they're trying to protect themselves and rely on their own strength and building a tower for their protection against animals, I guess, at this point, and also to show some hubris. I'll get to that in a minute. But yes, Lee had a point, and I'll get to Janie. Yeah, that could, that's actually one of the theories. That's a good point. Lee says that the, the NIV study Bible he has, the notes say that the tower, and the word for tower is actually a huge structure. So it's not just, you know, the height of the 17th Street Bridge. It's, it's a skyscraper. It's meant to be something not only there for protection, but something to sort of show off and be dramatic. One theory, it could also be, is there, it's, they're called a ziggurat, I think, and it's actually a, it's a, um, a, 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 a pre, I'm sorry, it is a, it is a, a stand of, um, it looks like, kind of like this, it looks kind of like a steps, like this, to be a stairway, right Sarah, a stairway to heaven, to try to reach God, does that make sense? So either way, whether it is or it isn't, we don't know for certain, could be, to Sarah's point and to Lee's point. However, one thing we know for sure is that whatever this tower is, it's meant to be something which is saying, we're going to stay here and we're going to do what we're going to do and we're going to reach God on our terms. Does this make sense, everyone? And, and I hope, you know, I want you to see the Tower of Babel as an illustration of you and me, because it is. Because we all do this. We all do things where we're all gonna see, I'm going to meet God on my terms. I'm not going to do what he wants me to do. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to go my way. I'm going I'm to protect myself. I'm going to put things in my life that make my life safer. Okay, fine. But God's commandment, Jesus' commandment, is always to be willing to be put out there, to be at risk. Okay. And somebody else had a comment or a question? Janie, yes. That's a good point. Janie makes the comment that Noah and his sons, right, were, were, uh, were ready to be obedient, but people here got fat, dumb, and happy. Can I paraphrase what you said? That people become comfortable, and they become relaxed, and they forget the mandate that God has placed upon them, and you, and I, to be out in the world proclaiming him. Does this make sense? I hope it hits a little closer to home, and maybe it's not. Anyway, yes, Connie. That's exactly right. Yes, notice the, and we're going to get to that next. Thank you. Then play on the words. Let's, uh, let's see verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for God. No, it's not what it says. <laughs> let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you see the irony here? They want to make a name for themselves. They want to prove that they're important. They want to prove that they have control over their lives. They want to be like God, like Eve, and like you and I. And then notice what they say. Lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that what you're supposed to be doing? That's what they were told to do. And what they're saying is, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's become focused. Let's reach God on our terms, lest we have to actually do what he's told us to do. And, it, and as Connie mentioned, the irony in all this is that by doing that, they actually wind up becoming dispersed. Notice something important here. This is an important thing. In, with the Noah story, we saw God getting to the point where human disobedience was so strong that what did God do? He wipes him out. And then he said, I'm never going to do that again. 
And like I said to you last week, so there's a, a problem hanging out there, which is human disobedience and willfulness and pride, but a God who has said, I'm not going to punish them or judge them according to what they deserve. So there's a, there's a tension hanging in, this, in, in the text right now. Do you see it? So what God does is he says to them, he doesn't wipe these guys out too. What he does instead, in his providential way that he always does, is he gets, he, he respects their free will to build a tower and build a city, but in the end, he wins, which we'll see in a second. Does that make sense? And again, you'll see this theme over and over and over again in scripture that you see a, hum, a God which allows human free will for you and I, but also a God who oversees and ultimately gets what he wants anyway, okay? Not by, not by preventing human free will, but by allowing it and then using it to his own ends. You'll see, that, you'll see that repeatedly. Is that clear, everybody? Okay. Do you see what's going on here, the dynamic? Okay, so, um, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. We're going to reach God on our terms and let us make a name for ourselves like God and let us, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Just so we don't have to do what God told us to do because we don't want to. And what does God do? This is actually a great play on words here. In verse 5, it says, The Lord came down. Where is God? He's in the heavens where they're trying to reach. And it's actually a deliberate play on words. And the Lord came down. The word there is Yahweh. It's the proper name for God. The pro the, his actual name. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. What does that tell you? Does God, does God go, man, that's a look at that. You guys, did, you guys did all right. It's like when your kid gets his Lego set, you know, and builds something. And you go, hey, that's a nice job, Johnny. The, the Hebrew is very clear that the Lord came, had, the Lord had to actually leave, you could say, in a manner of speaking, leave where he was in heaven to come down, to come down to earth, don't miss that, and see what they'd done. <laughs> Bill Shanklin's comment was the first thing that they might have thought was, oh boy, they're very, God's very pleased with what, what, what we've built for him. Yeah, perhaps. But, but the point here is it's, it's, an, it's a derogatory statement that God had to actually come down to see this work of man that was supposed to be so, so magnificent and so terrific. Somebody else had a hand? That's a good point. The, the, the scriptures use heaven as, uh, the, he, the word heaven doesn't mean, I mean, it can mean sky and the galaxies and all that. When you talk about God being high on his throne, it's, it's more of an uh, anthropomorphism than anything else. Anthropomorphism than anything else. I mean, God is clearly omnipresent everywhere. But to say that he come, came down meant, means that he leaves his place that they're trying to reach, that he owns by right and by virtue of who he is. He leaves that throne, if you will, and comes down to see this. It's kind of the implication. The, uh, so your, uh, your point is, is this more like what the Old Testament writers would use to make a point? The point is that, I mean, the Old Testament writers are clear that God is omnipresent. There's no, it's not like he's up in the sky floating around. I would say this is just an anthropomorphism, them trying to use a way to express it. And actually, you know, you see in the New Testament references to Jesus coming down from his throne. He didn't come down from anywhere. I mean, he didn't like descend, altitude. Uh, but it's an the coming down part is actually more an idea of, at least in the New Testament, of God leaving a throne, a place of honor, and descending, condescending to a place of 
a lesser habitation. The point here that, that the writer's trying to make is that the humans are trying really, really hard to save themselves and be like God, and God, it's, it doesn't even, it pales in comparison to the real thing. Make sense? That's the point the writer's trying to make. Anne, had a quick question? Well, it, in the old Hebrew concept of heaven and earth was that, the, the, you know, division there. And they thought heaven and earth was yeah, that's a good point. Anne makes the point that Hebrew writers would talk about the heaven being up and above and below. Yeah, that's a good point. They do. However, uh, not exclusively. It's almost, uh, it's, it's a tricky thing because in some way you're using human language to describe heaven and earth. But the Old Testament writers clearly don't believe that God was spatial. For example, uh, God is in the, temp in the temple at one point. The temple is filled with his smoke. But then later on, God leaves the temple. Right? He, well, he's in the tent at some point, but, is he, but is, he, is he bound by it? No. So, again, it's one of those things when you're a, an omnipresent, omnipotent God, you're trying, it's like us trying to figure out how that works is kind of tough to do. Anyhow, the point being, God had to come down, God had to come down to see what's going on. And the Lord said, I love this, behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What, what, what God is saying, and I want to hear this, because this, it sounds kind of funny. It sounds like a, you know, parents that kind of catch their kids doing something, playing with matches, and you think, oh boy, we've got to do something before this gets out of hand. Uh, God's actually, um, that's, a, that's a statement which bears repeating. They are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. What they will do in the absence of being under the lordship of God. In other words, when, they, when human beings begin to see themselves not as humans and God, but as when humans begin to see themselves as God, human history is full of examples that human evil and wickedness is almost uh, unbelievable. I'll give you an example. Look at, uh, look at, look at um, Stalin, right, and the, uh, the purges of the, of the Russians. When you have an atheistic world, right, you get rid of God, we're not going to be under the headship of God anymore. We're going to be in our, we're going to be God. We're going to take his place. Humanity is, is able and willing, and certainly has, um, done enormous evil. Do you see my point? Uh, I want to ask you a question. Do you think, when God says, behold, they are one people and what they have, one language, this is only the beginning of what they will do, if I don't do something to check this, and they really begin to believe that they're God, and they're not, worse, they're not living under the rules which I have given them, the evil they are capable of will be un astounding. And in fact, we saw that before in Genesis with the Noah flood. Let me ask you a question. Do you think our culture is becoming increasingly secular, yes or no? Okay. So here's the obvious question. Once you take a culture, whether it's the children of Abraham or the Noahic descendants in Genesis chapter 11, or you take a culture in 21st century Europe or the United States, which is becoming increasingly secular, the capability of the human heart to do evil is 
almost unbounded. You see my point? So God, you know, it sounds like this is a ridiculous thing to say. God's confusing the language so they won't build a big tower. No, no, there's a lot more to it than that. What God is saying is, I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to remove their free will altogether. We've talked about that. God has, in his own designs, allows for human free will. He has to allow for it if he wants us to love him. He has to permit us to not, by definition. So God permits human free will, but he restrains it. And here he restrains it, with, he restrains it by confusing their language. But the point I want you to see here is the danger that God sees is that humanity, when it gets together, and humanity, when it begins to believe that it actually is God and is not accountable to the Lord, is capable of tremendous evil and suffering. Doug. That's right. Doug, I hadn't thought about that. Doug had the observation that in the modern world where we have cell phones and, you know, also we have basically Google Translator, which you can, gosh, you can type something in, it'll translate it for you. We are maybe even going back towards that part. And, to Doug's point, going to the moon and doing all these scientific things, yeah, that can be a good thing, but man, you can, do an, you can create an awful lot of really... My daughter Amy told me that she read an article, she could be misinformed, but she told me that in China they're actually cloning human beings. Is that true? Anybody know if that's true? People. Yeah. Embryos, anyway. Uh, that is, is that, is that, you had your hand up? I, no, okay. I the other part of this would be he had promised not to destroy everybody. Right. So then what, what is he, you know, what can he do? What are his options? What right. are his options? And I guess, you know, you think, what are his options for us? Well, okay, so Jim's point is God had said last time in the Noah story, I'm not going to wipe them out again. I'm, in other words, I'm not going to execute justice on them that they deserve, right? So, and we're, we see this story and it repeats itself over and over. What God does instead is he doesn't remove their free will, he just makes it a lot harder for them to collaborate in evil ways. Does that make So what will he do, what will the Lord do on our own day today? Well, that's a good question. Uh, but the answer is always the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's our job, friends, in a world and a culture which is becoming increasingly secular, to point out the dangers of secularism, right? To point out that, when, that atheism and Nietzscheism, left unchecked, will lead to Pol Pot and the purges of Stalin and the Holocaust and abortion on demand and all the things we have now in our culture. This is what, this is what happens. This is, this is 3,000 3, years old in the story, but it's a recurring theme over and over. So what the answer is, Jim, to your point would be, the answer is always Jesus. And the church being on the front lines, like they were called to be, converting, going out into the world and converting the heart. Janet. Right, Janet makes, a, from, her, from her Bible, makes an observation that, that the, they have a high, the humans have developed a high confidence, I'm paraphrasing, a high confidence in their own ability, and what was the last verse? And have high aspirations. And have high aspirations. Do you think the human heart really fundamentally wants to be God? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are all prone to want to be our own masters and be our own, be accountable to no one. So don't, this Babel story is a lot closer to my heart and yours than you might actually be comfortable admitting. Judy. 
Yes, Judy makes the observation, evil has become institutionalized, but, but let's also notice something here too, that this is nothing new, right? It's, a, it's just part of the human, it's a part of living in a fallen and broken world that has people in it that are sinners, and therefore God, because he's decided not to wipe us out and has allowed us, has given us free will, the options are we have to work within the system which we have, which is broken and fallen until the Lord returns. I'm going to talk about this on Sunday with the Beatitudes. Um, but your point is, take, well taken, evil's a real thing and the human heart is uh, wicked above all things, Paul says. Uh, let's, I yes. Yeah, can control. Uh, uh, she made an interesting point that um, that's all about control, right? We want to have control over our own lives. It's the same thing. Remember back to what God, what, what the devil said to Eve, right? You'll not, you'll, you know, you'll not, he'll, you'll not die forever. You'll, if you eat the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be what? Like God. <laughs> and everybody wants to be like God. So if you're like God, you don't have to wait for his, for his, his timing. And remember, too, that the, next, the story immediately following this, which we're going to read about next week, is the call of Abram. And so it's a contrast to this, but we'll get to that next week. So let's look at verse 7. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Do you notice something? It doesn't actually say that he confused their language. It's a subtle point, because he, he does, but it doesn't actually tell you that. What it says is, uh, the, the Lord dispersed them. So interestingly, he tells them, back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, go out and be fruitful and multiply. And they say, nah, no thanks, we're going to stay here and be our own bosses. So he confuses their language, and their, and their doing, he actually gets them where he wants them to be. Right? By not, viol not by violating their free will, but by with, 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 um, with uh, confusing their speech. Therefore, this place was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Uh, we find out next time, we come across this guy named Abram, who was a wandering Aramean, right? So he's a guy who's a wanderer, a nomad. He's the exact guy that God wants, somebody who's out in the world, uh, being in the world and being his witness. Dr. Large. Uh, yeah. He is, yes. We say that repeatedly here. Uh, God, Jim's point is in verse 7, come let us go down. It's God say him, saying to himself, it's a first person plural, us, right? First person? Yeah. Uh, come let us go down. Let us condescend. And again, don't miss the nut nuance here because we see this later on in the New Testament when Jesus Christ comes down. Okay? Don't miss that. This is a foreshadowing, if you will. But yes, you're right. You see in Genesis chapter 11, just like we saw in Genesis chapter 2, the God referring, to, and chapter 1, referring to himself in the first person plural. That's the Trinity, what you see. And they go down and they confuse their language and the people are dispersed. And they're dispersed because they're no longer able to collaborate with each other to be God-like. Do you think God, has God ever done something in your life where he was, prevented you from doing something you were going to do? Yes, he has. He has in my life, too. 
a God is a God who will sometimes put things in your life which will prevent you from hurting yourself or other people. He may, some, he may someday very well confuse your language, to, as a matter of speaking. Would you say that one in the beginning of different nationalities? Yeah, that's a good point. Charlotte's observation is, would this be the beginning of different nationalities? And the answer would be yes. Thank you for setting that up for me. Man. Hello. Thank you. The Lord... Now, the Tower of Babel was a group of people that took it upon themselves to be godlike and to do it their own way, right? Okay? So like, wow, well, we don't God smart, we're gonna do our own thing, we're gonna do our own way, we're gonna be, we're gonna be in God's place. That whole thing, that Tower of Babel curse, if you didn't know this, is undone in Acts chapter two, which I'm gonna to read to you if you want to turn to it. Um, uh, if anybody can call out a page number, I'm, I'm using a different... Acts chapter 2. Uh, I'll read that. So, Acts chapter 2, I'll set that up for you. Jesus Christ has died, been resurrected, and ascended, in, excuse me, ascended into heaven from whence he came. And before he did that, he said, Go up to Jerusalem and sit tight, and I will send you the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, the Parakletos is the Greek word, who will lead you into all truth. And they do it. They gather under God's guidance together as people of all different parts of the world are in, are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, which is a Jewish feast, from all over the world. And this is what happens. You ready? Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. We've heard that before. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Where is this coming from? From the Lord. Now there were, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hear that, and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, I love that, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Phrygia and so forth. If you take those people groups that they list out there and trace them out on a map, residents of uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, if you take a map and you trace that out in the Mediterranean, what you see is this. What, that, what you see are representatives of everybody in the known world. Do you see my point? What in, in Genesis 11, humanity presumed to be God and do it on our own, and presumed to take God's place. In Acts chapter 2, it's people coming together, again, a dangerous enterprise, except they are in a, in, together waiting for God to act. And when God acts, what does he do? He breathes on them the wind, which we saw in Genesis 1 with the water, right? And we see it in lots of places. This wind comes through, creates a new thing, and what happens is that the curse of Babel is undone. Do you see it? 
And the reason it's undone is because the disciples gathered in the upper room were being what? Obedient. Obedient. And God was going to use them to now go out into the world and do what the, the descendants of Noah are supposed to do in Genesis 11 and failed. But now, friends, you and I are called to do the same thing, not on our own power, but on whose power? The power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in, on, and through us. Is it you with me? Powerful stuff. Anybody, you learn anything today? Yes. Um, let me show you one quick, any comments or questions, and I'm going to show you something more technical. Yes, Doug. Doug thank you. Doug's, Doug's, uh, Doug's comment was, and I'm repeating it because we have it for the camera. Doug's comment was um, that there are other ancient cultures that have stories that are similar to the Noah flood, right, with a boat and the man and three sons. Um, but there are also stories in other ancient Near Eastern cultures about a story of a Tower of Babel or something like it. So it's interesting, and if you do historical study, what you do is you look at cultures and to the degree that they are separate cultures but that, but that their stories all point to something, it means you're onto something. Okay, right, so Doug, and Doug says these are not just Mesopotamians, which is where the Tower of Babel was. He's saying cultures that are in the Amazon and in Indonesia, all over the world, have this memory of that happening. Well, maybe it's because the culture all came from there. People dismiss the story, but again, and, and Doug's going to talk about this uh, later also, about the, uh, I don't want to steal your thunder about your science stuff. Uh, yes, one quick thing. Martha? Yeah, so Martha's comment is, think of all the, the problems we run into with miscommunication, and you're right, the problems we have in miscommunicating information, but the more important thing is, imagine all the problems we'd have, we would have if we could communicate clearly. In other words, if humanity really could, really could collaborate together. It's interesting, you know, we all think, oh, we've got so many cultures, we need to be all one big thing and multicultural and all that. You know, maybe not so much. And I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm I'm, I'm an uh, isolationist. What I'm saying is that I think for us to say that for us to have this great big global human family, where we're all one and speak the same language with the same world government and all that stuff, that people sort of this utopian idea, that seems like an awfully dangerous enterprise to me. Uh, let me show you one cool thing in here too. Uh, this story. This is a little more technical, but I'll, I want to show it to you just because it's cool. Uh, this. Whoop, uh, the Hebrew text is extremely highly structured. You'll sometimes read text in the Old Testament particularly, uh, and in this story, the Tower of Babel, it is, and you might think, well, why is it worded that way? Why does it kind of have these, these double wordings? Like, uh, like here where it said, um, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, right? Look, notice this, this is actually really cool. This is called an inclusio. Old Testament writers and New Testament writers, Paul does this all the time, actually structures the text in such a way to make it easy to memorize, right? Remember, this is all oral transmission. So notice, this is actually really cool. Uh, this is called an inclusio, and if you notice, it's nine verses, and verse one and nine match, verse two and eight match, verse three and seven match, verse three and seven, well, three and seven, three and seven match, Verse 4 and 5 match, verse 4 and 5 match, and then verse 5 is the center. Do you see that, how that works? If you look at the Genesis story, I didn't show you this when we, did, we talked about Genesis, the creation narratives. You know how it said that there was light created before the sun was there? 
The reason is the, it's structured the same way, day one and day seven, day two and day six, day three and day five. All I'm trying to show you is give you an appreciation for how the, the, the Hebrew writers structured these materials in a way, not necessarily to make them chronological like we would do, but to make them memorizable. You with me? So and it's actually really cool, if you care about this kind of stuff, really cool linguistics and poetry. So if you look, the whole world had, had one language, and then verse 9, the language of the whole world. Verse 2, they were there, uh, right there, and then they were there, they went there to uh, Shinar, God sends them from there, from Shinar. Um, each other and each other match in verse 7. Come, let us make bricks in verse 3. Uh, verse 7, come, let us confuse. Do you see how it works? Um, uh, a city with a tower, verse 4. Um, the city and the tower, verse 5. And it all hinges, hinges and it all, the key, the, the pivot for the whole inclusio is verse 5, which is... The Lord came down. It's cool. Does it, you won't get you a free cup of coffee at Starbucks, but, <laughs> but it's cool. And I, I want you to see, because this goes right over our heads, but the Hebrew mind would write that way, deliberately, and it's poetic, and it's just very heavily, highly structured. So, the Psalms do the same thing. The Psalms do the same exact thing. The Psalm, to Anne's point, the Psalms do that. The Psalms are actually repetitive. We'll get to them when we get to the Psalms, but they are poetry, and there's a very, very strong, clear structure to them, uh, deliberately so. So um, that's all I've got. Any any observations, comments, questions, funny anecdotes about the Tower of Babel? Yes, Peggy. No, no, her question, okay, Peggy's question is, are the inclusives always five verses? No. The way they work, though, is they always work in the same way. And it, uh, they're sometimes called a chiasm also. But it kind of goes like, here's this, and here's this. It could be ten verses, it could be seven, and then the second one, and the second to last one. Right? They are all throughout the Old Testament, and they're just kind of neat... Um, literary devices that they use, which we don't do anymore, but they did. And if you understand them and appreciate them, it gives you an appreciation for the text. The text, yes. Is there a relationship between the Tower of Babel and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? I have no idea. The question is, are there any, is there any relationship between the Tower of Babel and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? I don't know. However, Babel becomes Babylon. It's in, it's in the same spot, Mesopotamia, Fertile Crescent, all that. Your comment about it, it's written to be memorized and not chronological, and that stands out to me because in chapter, chapter 9, they, thought they send them out to <coughs> uh, many languages. Chapter 10 talks about many places, many languages. Then you get to chapter 11, and they all speak the same way. That's a good point. Okay, so Al's point was, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Al's point was... Uh, he was glad that I showed them that the texts are not always written chronologically, but more to be memorized. Because if you look back in chapter 9 and 10, it talks about other languages. Well, how do you reconcile that with there's all one language? Um, it could be two things. It could be that it's being written uh, in an A chronological order. Or it could also be, another theory, is that this one language does not mean that the other cultures don't have their own language. It means they all have a lingua franca, a common language. 
like, we, like today, English is the lingua franca and the you know, airlining or something. So uh, that could be it also. That either, either there was only one language and no other cultural languages possibility, or they all had their own cultural languages, but there was also a common language that everybody spoke, which was what made it dangerous. But the point is that the point here that I want to reiterate, what the scriptures is telling you is twofold, that the human heart, left unchecked, is capable of surpassing evil. And we, look, I mean, look at 20th century history, to, just 20th century history alone, and that'll make that point, let alone the, all the other 19th centuries before that. That's the first point. The second point I want you to see is that God, in his love and providence, can be creative <laughs> in how he prevents human beings from really doing serious damage. I mean, I think to my, think to my own self, you know, think about like these people getting run over in New York, North Korea, I mean, all these different things we have in our own culture today. How is God going to solve that problem? Well, he's going to solve it through the church, probably. But he's got a lot, some tricks up his sleeve, too. Anyhow. Any other observations? Okay, yes, Bob. We do think, God, Bob's question is, if God made us in his image, why do we not think like him? We do, actually, we do think like him. One of the things I'll point out, which I didn't mention, but I'll point it out to you, is the Tower of Babel people, what's, what do they do? What do human beings do that no other creature does? We build stuff. We build things, right? God is a God who does what? He creates. That's the first thing he does. And the, so one, one thing you could say about being created in God's image is that human beings are creative by nature. Right? The idea of permanent vacation and is just not natural. But we do think like God. We do have an intrinsic understanding of right and wrong. But we're also fallen sinners, too. There's the rub. <coughs> Pardon me. Anything else? Okay, yes, real quick. Okay, uh, Martha's question is, uh, going back to the come, let us make, um, let us go down, and the use of the uh, first person plural in the Old Testament in reference to God. Did Jews believe in a uh, triune God? And the answer is no. Uh, however, it's there. At least a, plur a plurality is there. Not, it doesn't have three here yet. But at least the, there is several, and we've already seen a few, instances where God refers to himself in the first person plural. So, question has to be obvious. If you're a Jewish person, what do you do with that? Well, I've asked them, and they'll say one of two things. Either it is God referring to himself in the, with the royal we, which is a 17th century construction, so I don't know how that works. <laughs> but also um, that it was uh, imposed on the text, but from outside. Or they say, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, I actually, I might have something for you to think about. What's that? A translation, translation error. Translation error. Yeah. Or, or God referring to himself and angels, but the problem is angels don't have, this is actually another way people will say, it's God referring to himself and the angels, but the problem is angels do not have any creative capacity. Angels don't create, right? Only God creates. So, anyhow. Good question, Martha. Wish I could give you a better answer. I don't have one, unfortunately. So, Next week, we're going to look at Abraham and the call of Abram, which is, is it the covenant with Abram or just the call of Abram? Genesis, uh, uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 20. And what you see is a wandering guy who God calls. God loves wandering people for some reason. 
so, uh, and then, okay, then we've got two more weeks to go. So Genesis 12, verses 1 for 20 next week. And then uh, God's covenant with Abram, God, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. That's really, really cool stuff. And then we're going to wrap up until the spring. And I'll let you know about the infancy narratives. Don't go anywhere. We're going to pray. So, uh, the Lord be with you. Lord God, we, we thank you for bringing us here tonight. We thank you for this day you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, for the story of the Tower of Babel and reminding us of our own fallenness and brokenness and our need to always lean on you for correction and guidance and to wait on you for a plan to move forward. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which both comforts and challenges us, and we pray and thank you for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your church, which empowers us to do all the things you've called us to do in your name. We uh, pray, Lord, especially tonight for George, Dan, and his recovery, and for Penny and her ministry to him. We pray, Lord, for your presence to be with them and healing in his body and comfort for her. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.